Alexander Volkov got back into the win column. Mavsari Vloyev showed that he is the goods. And we have a lot of fun things to talk about with a special guest. It is Sunday, June 5th. These are the next day takeaways. Welcome everybody back to the show. It is the first Sunday of June, the first of ideally provided schedules work out correctly. Like a dozen consecutive Sundays that we will be here on the next day takeaways talking about the action that transpired inside the octagon the previous day. In this case, it was a previous afternoon, which is lovely. Got the fights done by four. Got the fights done by much earlier in the evening than normal for my guest this week, making his second appearance and what will be his second of many, many regular appearances. It's my good friend, Harry Powell from Severe MMA. Thank you, sir, for joining me this lovely Hello, day. sir. As always, it's an honor to spend some time with you and to, to, to discuss the, the things and the fights and the things. Yes. The things and the fights and the things. We talk about them beforehand. We talk about them during. It makes sense to talk about them after. If you're not following Harry on Twitter, please do so at BJJ underscore Harry Powell. I don't say it just because he's here or because I do work with him at Severe MMA from time to time. He is one of the sharpest emerging minds in this sport. He is blushing as I say it, but it is the goddamn truth. Go follow I fucking him. hate this stuff. I he's so smart. This stuff. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So before he and I dive into it, I want to start with a little open here about this card. And, and if you read the newsletter, which if you're listening to this, you read the newsletter and I thank you and I love you. You know that I framed this card both on the newsletter and and at UFC.com this week as the first wing in the Hot Ones gauntlet where it's it's just a classic, right? It's just a wing that nobody's going to not like this wing. Even if it's a bad wing, it's still a chicken wing and it's still good. And coming away from this fight card, it was precisely what I expected it to be. We got some entertaining fights. We got some, we got a bunch of good finishes. We got a bunch of enjoyable moments inside the octagon. It was largely action oriented. There weren't a lot of moments that felt like a slog where it felt like, oh my God, is this ever going to end? It wasn't one of those cards. We got some key results in a couple places that Harry and I will go through in greater detail here in a minute. We had a few fun talking points, a couple familiar ones, judging, referees. We'll get into those as well. But for me, the the real main takeaway from this card was this is what I this is what I wanted. This is how I wanted to get back into. This was a lovely way to get back into 12 straight weeks of fights or 11 straight weeks of fights, whatever it is. You don't want to dive in with something amazing like the July 2nd pay-per-view fight card that's coming up because it sets the bar too high. It's far too much. Just like on Hot Ones, as I said, you need to wade in with that classic sauce that just is everybody everybody digs in and goes, yep, this is this is great. This is perfect. No problems here. You know there's greater coming. You know there's more danger coming. There is spicier action coming down the line. But we need to just wade ourselves in. And if you came into this show, if you came into this event expecting more, expecting something bigger, then I think you're your expectations are just misaligned. Not every show can be ginormous. And and I've talked about this a lot in the last seven days. Not every show can be massive. There have to be events like this in order for there to be UFC 275 and UFC 276 and UFC 277, which will all take place within the next 60 days. 
in order for those shows to exist, these shows have to exist. And it is a balance thing. It is, in fact, all about balance. And so if this was, I understand if you weren't keen. And as I said on Friday in the Punch Drunk Predictions, I'm done trying to convince people to care about every fight and every fight card and things like that because it's not my job to convince you. It's my job to be out here giving information, providing the best insights and ideas I can and explanations for me as to why I'm excited. But if you went into this and thought, man, it needs to be better than this, then I think you need to give your head a shake because this is this is the appetizer. This may even only be the amuse-bouche of this meal. Like we're just getting started. And this was a great way to get started, in my opinion. You don't have to agree with it. Harry's nodding his head, so I think he does. But this is one of those things where if you came into UFC Las Vegas 55, UFC Apex 55, and thought, man, this isn't good enough, it may be time to start reevaluating what you deem, what you're looking for in these fight cards and overall. I talked about it on Monday. We need to talk about actual tangible solutions as opposed to the UFC needs to dial back its fight card, its schedule, because that's not happening. And to me, this was a perfectly suitable way to dive back into the schedule. The top of that dive back into the schedule as we bring Harry in was Alexander Volkov and Jarzinho Rosenstrike in a seven versus eight matchup in the heavyweight division that I think we all agreed on Thursday's severe MMA preview show was just a, again, kind of like this card, a perfectly suitable heavyweight matchup that isn't necessarily going to tell us too much, isn't necessarily going to have too huge of an impact on the division. And yet I still came away from it feeling like I learned a little something and, and having a little more interest going forward in Alexander Volkov, who looked better to me on Saturday than he has even in some of his more recent victories. So, I want to bring it back slightly, if I can, just to the point you're making about cards and, and whatever. Like, I don't, I don't really see what the problem is with these cards. I don't see what there is to complain about. And I'll, I'll frame that in, in a way that when I first got into MMA, I remember watching, you know, maybe 22 cards a year, maybe something like that, maybe a little bit more. Um, but they all felt like, big scale events, right? When I was first starting, obviously when I was first first starting watching, I had no idea who was good and who wasn't good. I had no who did, no idea who was a name and who wasn't a name. But quickly as you sort of listened to the commentary or you saw the VTs or you, you know, you followed these guys on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, the more that you sort of enveloped yourself in the sport, the more that you understood who the who the stars were and and who sort of the middling fighters were in the hierarchy of the whole thing. But each event sort of felt special and it felt like an event now in the modern era the ufc isn't an event anymore they don't put events on they put cards on it's becoming more and more like the type of 
I don't know the right phrasing for this, but the the type of sports that you would watch, league sports, right? Like a soccer match. You know there's going to be 52 games a year or however many there are teams in the league times two. Uh, like the same as a, a, an NBA series, the same as a an NFL season. It's the same. You're going to be expecting a regular schedule of programming. The same with those sorts of sports that you don't necessarily need to watch all of them to keep up with the rhetoric of the programming, right? And I think that MMA fans in some fa- in some aspect are harking back to what was and have not been able to, as you so beautifully put, recalibrate their minds to what is now. The intentions of the brand, the intentions of the company has changed. And maybe it's not changed in a public statement that would appease the recalibration of the masses, but it has changed. These cards, regardless of what you think of them from an archaic perspective, are fine and well cards. What you're watching is still, for the most part, and we'll get into some of the ones that weren't, high-level highly trained, highly skilled fighters going out and competing. Are there cards where there are fights with fighters that should not be in the UFC or what we determine to be the UFC level? Yes. But in the same vein, as you have said previously, and as as I've just made the point here, with the recalibration of the UFC, we also then have to, logically, recalibrate what the level is that we're expecting to see right what is the ufc level joe sylvie used to talk about this all the time right like he's just not ufc level when you're looking at a guy or whatever the ufc level has dramatically dramatically changed and that's something that we are seeing with the introduction of dana white looking for a fight dana white contender series and and so on and so on now i'll move on to, to volkov in just one second but you look at this fight card. There are a lot of names that if you've followed the sport for the last three years, even on the fringes, you know who Karolina Kovalkiewicz is. You probably know who Dan Ige is. You almost certainly know who Volkov is. You probably have heard of one of the many names of a Selecki or a Jackson or a, you know, a Gravely or a Blanchfield. Or you've probably heard of these people on cards you've watched in previous times. Um, so I just think that the the crying out for uh, better cards is as dumbfounded as it is to say the UFC should dampen their schedule structure. It's not going to happen, and it doesn't exist. So before you jump into Volkov, which I do want to hear, I want to jump into this as well, because this is this is an argument I've made many times over. People ask me if I follow other sports. I do to an extent. I still very much enjoy the NBA. I still watch the NFL throughout the fall when it's on, largely because I'm in like 15 fantasy football leagues and I like fantasy football. But I don't have the same day-to-day interest. I don't have the same need to watch every single game the way that I did growing up, the way that I used to watch hockey or the way that I used to watch baseball especially where there's 162 games in a season and some people sit and want to watch every single one and feel that every single one is critical. I just lost that because 
game 83 of 162 doesn't feel that important to me. And it might be a game where seven guys that don't play pretty regularly get out on the field and it's not really the best representation of the Blue Jays or whoever it may be. But that doesn't mean that it's terrible. That doesn't mean that the person that still enjoys that game and is still looking for that game is an idiot for enjoying it or anything like that. They also just recognize that, yep, some of these guys are, you know, we've got some injuries, we've got some young kids playing. This is where we're at. It has changed, as you said. There has been a recalibration of the level of this team or the level of this league in some regards. And and I think that's the piece for me to what you said of people are looking back to sort of hearkening back to those old days. I get it. We all have things we are nostalgic for. We all have, at some point in our life, we reach an age where it's the, it was better in my day. And I remember when, be it music, be it movies, be it sport, whatever. And I think you are correct. And it is a thing that I've talked about, that there are a lot of people currently that watch this product and say, well, I liked it more back here and I want them to go back to it. I understand it but it's wholly unrealistic to me. It's just not where we are. And so it doesn't mean that you have to like, love, fully embrace where we are now, but you have to accept it as the reality and you have to come around to understanding where we are and that it's not changing, that it's not going to be the thing that you always want it to be. And then you can make your decisions accordingly going forward in terms of, what you consume, how much you invest, who you like, what you like, whatever the case may be. But you have to kind of operate in the here and the now, as opposed to just yearning for days gone by. I agree. If I could ask one question of you before we move on, because I think this is an interesting point. I understand we've been 14 minutes deep. My question is, (laughs) there are many stages to an empire, right? And sort of the final stage of an empire is gluttony. And after gluttony, generally, people become so lazy that another empire will come in and wreck shop and take over the cities, right? Do you feel like that that the MMA fandom of right now has been treated so well with the level of fighter, with the marketing with the overall product that they've forgotten what bad MMA is. <laughs> yes, we have, we have spent, I would say, and I'm going to try to think just off the top of my head in terms of number of years, but we have spent the last seven, eight, ten 10 years just at the, the absolute best smorgasbord of MMA imaginable. You na- like this isn't just the like you go on a Tuesday afternoon for the Chinese buffet somewhere. This is like you turn up at the yacht club and it's the New Year's brunch and they've got the crab legs and they've got the lobster tails and they've got ready to make omelets and they've got ready to make eggs Benny and all the everything you name it it's there all the pastries all the whatever making handcrafted coffees the whole nine and i think people are just so used to having such choices 
having such a plethora of choices and no longer, as you said, no longer appreciating what bad, like it's fun for me to go back every time I hear the like, remember when all those cards used to, every card used to matter, every card used to be bangers and you go back and you look at it and you're like, really? You thought this pay-per-view with this guy that never amounted to anything was an absolute banger and you 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 were sitting at home like, I can't wait to see Fighter X who never amounted, who if if that version of, and that version of Fighter is a guy now that you have no time for. Because now we see anybody kind of below even maybe the middle of the pack in the division is somebody that a lot of fans, a lot of media, a lot of consumers have limited time for or no time for, if that. And I think it is because of, as you said, the gluttony of things, the the wealth of choice, the high level that it has gotten to, that we no longer appreciate truly what terrible MMA used to look like. For sure. And I would even argue, and I'll, I promise I'll get into Volkov next. No, that's but I would why even I argue having you on. That in the last three years, MMA has taken a drastic upturn. I think that the introduction of, I think when Habib exploded, wrestling became cool again, right? Yes. Grappling, top grappling, smothering pressure grappling, uh, half guard landing shot. It became really cool. And MMA oscillates between, to me, MMA has a relationship similar to the the archetypal story of the sun and the the day and the night story in in ancient Egypt, right? Where I've forgotten the names of the gods, but every morning they you know they have a battle every single day, right? And one of them wins in daytime, one of them wins at nighttime. And MMA is going through that. If there was just a couple more gods, right? We've got grappling based fighters we have submission orientated base fighters and we have striking base fighters right and there's an oscillation between the leaps the gargantuan global leaps in mma knowledge and skill with each of those things and generally it's because there's an introduction of a of a certain different flavor of the world like the next big influx i think will be african fighters and all the martial arts that they bring over and all the grappling and striking offerings that they have and the submission orientated stuff that they're going to show i think the wave the first wave of russian and dagestani fighters have come in and those are going to begin to proliferate and i think that now mma is probably an absolutely insanely huge sport in those in those regions of the world and we're going to see some some crazy differences but talking about russians i said i was going to do it and now i'm going to do it i promise look at that segue thank you volkov um i said it to you last night there's a lot of fighters that that come in pre-fight and they say oh i'm going to finish this guy okay sure and that it doesn't happen for whatever reason, you know, maybe that their game plan didn't work or, you know, they weren't feeling it on the day or whatever. Volkov came in and said, look, I wasn't happy with my last performance against Aspinall. I changed some stuff up. I feel like I can finish this guy. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to really going to try and do it in the preview with uh, Mr. I O'Neill. He asked me what, what I thought the crux of this fight was. And I thought the crux of this fight was going to be range. And I think it turned out to be that, 
right? Jairzinho Rosenstruck in the first, you know, this wasn't a long fight, but a stretch of the imagination. But Jairzinho Rosenstruck struggled to get inside that lead leg kick of Alexander Volkov and really couldn't get anywhere near the back leg kick of Alexander Volkov. Those were chipping away at the Arsenal a little while. You know, it really hit him in the Popeyes was what was what we said on, on the discussion we were having while the fights were going on. And what Jozinho attempted to do was to parry the kick, sort of outside splay the kick, as you'd see from, you know, conventional Muay Thai or kickboxing fighters, and then burst his way in. However, when you're trying to do that to a gargantuan mammoth man, um, you're going to have big, long piston hands coming back at you. And Volkov just did so well at managing that range and landing really hard shots on Jarzino Rosenstruck as he was coming in and equally as he was going out. So that gives you the dilemma of, do I want to go in and potentially la- you know, have these iron piston hands in my face or do I want to stay on the outside and get hit with them anyway, right? right. He's not a grappler, so shooting and you know, diversifying his game that way is probably going to be a bad idea against a man who can sprawl far better and get his hips far further away because his torso is the same size as my desk. Um, but overall, I was just, I was pretty impressed with Volkov. I was pretty impressed that there was a mean streak back, you know? Yes. And and that was something that I was, I was very happy to see. I'll hand it over to you and I'll, I'll ask you, first of all, there were lots of arguments online about the stoppage. Jairzinho has come out and said he doesn't understand the stoppage. What do you think? I'm fine with the stoppage. Um, I have always, will always advocate for earlier rather than later. I know Jairzinho came out and said, was anybody asleep on the canvas? And it's like, we don't, we don't need to get to that point where somebody is unconscious. We don't need to get to a point where someone's bleeding profusely and has taken 50 unanswered blows. That's that's not necessarily what this has to be. I think he was caught very cleanly with the shot that started it. I believe it was a right hand and a lovely one at that. And then the follow-ups were there and the and the effectively defending, effectively, you know, protecting himself wasn't great. It's kind of scrambled around and he's stumbly and he's and so there's always the point to me. And I think we've talked about it in the past at times of, is this going to change though? Is anything going to be different here after this? Like maybe, sure, maybe you can let that go on. But is Alexander Volkov not just going to keep walking you down and smashing you with this right hand that you clearly don't have an understanding of where it's coming from or how it's coming and things like that? We're just going to get to this point anyways. I know there are some people that will say, well, maybe not. Sure but he's clearly on the ropes already. He's clearly taking damage. No problem with it whatsoever. The point that you spoke of and that you brought up was that this was a more aggressive Alexander Volkov. This was, as you said, a guy that said, I'm going to, I think I can finish this guy. I'm going to go out and try to finish this guy. And then actively went out and fought with a urgency an aggressiveness a purpose towards finishing him, which is very different than we've seen in some fights from Alexander Volkov. Throughout his UFC career, he's been a top 10 guy. He's been close to sort of that title contention group a number of times. 
and often stumbled backwards. Those are the fights that he's managed to lose, or in the case of the Derek Lewis fight, have snatched away from him in the last 17 seconds. Can this version of Alexander Volkov, provided it remains, provided this is who we see appearance after appearance, change his fate in the division, or is he still kind of stuck being just behind that elite group? I think he stays just behind. Um, I think his aggression is something that was very refreshing, as we've already touched on, and it will definitely stand him in good stead going onwards. But if you look at the guys that are coming up, uh, one second. <clears throat> Sorry, I just coughed and I didn't think the listeners would need to hear that. Um, That's all right. You look at the guys in that top, top, top tier bracket, right? You've got Francis, obviously, Stipe, you have Tomas Bernal, in my opinion, is right up there now. Sihil Gagne, obviously, right up there. I think very soon we're going to see Romanov in there. Probably Pavlovich is going to be somewhere around there. There are some Johnny Jones, if he ever you know decides to come in at heavyweight, will obviously be in and around there. Taitu Avasa is somewhere around there. Derek Lewis is somewhere around there. Most of the guys, you know, and hierarchically we've we've fallen down the chain a little bit, but the the sort of top four or five guys all can fight, but they're all athletic. They all have speed. They all have power. The one thing that Volkov doesn't have after you know last night was his seven hundred and forty eighth fight, right? The one thing he doesn't have is speed in abundance, and I think aggression will get you far, but. In, in heavyweight speed kills, right? Timing speed, timing beats speed, sure. And precision beats speed, sure. But when your speed disadvantage is as vast as Volkov's is against somebody like a uh, Thomas Bernal, as we saw in London, somebody like a Sihil Genye, somebody like a Romanov, right? That's a big problem. And I think that the new school of heavyweights that are coming up are going to just be too young, too hungry, and too athletically able for somebody like Volkov. But he is going to be that litmus test for the elite of the elite. If you go in there and do what Tom Aspinall did to Volkov, you're going places. Yeah, We can join the hype train, I can buy a first-class ticket, and I can get on, right? But if you're going in there and you know, you're looking like you're having a, a difficult time, like a Derek Lewis, for instance, right? For whatever reason, Volkov decided to lose that fight because he was absolutely battering Derek Lewis pillar to post. And we, we see what happens, right? Derek Lewis is not an elite fighter. He just has one elite attribute, right? Um, so in answer, in answer to your question, I don't think he, 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 he bridges the gap. So two things from that. One, I agree with you completely that this is sort of the level he stays at. He remains that gatekeeper to the elite. As anybody that listens to this, reads my stuff knows, I revere those people. I think we need to spend more time revering those people because it is insanely challenging to remain in that position for as long as someone like Alexander Volkov has, for as long as someone like Jeremy Stevens did or Rafael Asensao did, constantly fighting the 
best competitors there are constantly being the guy that's tested by the next up and comer and still sort of maintaining, even if it's a 500 record right now, as it has been for Volkov through his last kind of six or seven fights, alternating wins and losses. That is insanely difficult when you are fighting the absolute class of a division. The other thing from there mentioned his name twice. And I think it's the right fight for Volkov going forward as this is the next day takeaways and sort of trying to figure some things out is Alexander Romanov, who is undefeated overall, who is undefeated in the UFC, who came into his last fight, albeit short notice and then pushed back against Chase Sherman, looking like a different human being. He had tucked up. He had dropped some of the, the just girth and turned into a more svelte version of Alexander Romanov. And I think that dude is a problem. I think that is, of all the handful of emerging fighters in that division right now, which I would put at essentially just him and Sergei Pavlovich as the younger working their way up guys. He is the one that I think can become a guy that clears this Volkov hurdle going forward. I agree. What I wrote in my notes at the very end was, can we do Volkov and Romanov next? And can we do Rosenstroik and Latifi? Lovely. Those were my picks. Perfect. Because, you know, Rosenstroik could probably beat Ali Latifi, but he offers him enough of a challenge uh, to make it an interesting fight. And again, as you've just laid out, Volkanov, Volkanov, Volkov and Romanov offers some very interesting questions. Is Volkov able to dictate the range enough to keep Romanov away? Can Romanov just crash through him and find his grappling? Do we see something similar to what we saw with Evloev last night where Romanov actually chooses to stand and try and trade with him and, and do the whole MMA thing? I think I think both of those fights. I mean, I, I'm f- obviously you're you're far more interested in the Volkov Romanov fight because there's a far deeper and nuanced narrative to it. But you know, yeah, I like both of those fights. I will be a bit of a homer and stump for Tanner Boser against Jairzinho Rosenstrike next. I take that just because I'd like to see the Canadian get an opportunity against somebody he was supposed to fight. Alexander Romanov got hurt, wasn't able to compete. I'd like to see Bosser get a get a good chance going forward. I like that. So we'll do a little reset here as we dive in. 30-minute mark. Next day takeaways, East Spencer Kite, Harry Powell, Severe MMA, at BJJ underscore Harry Powell. Go follow him. He's brilliant. You mentioned a name there just a second ago that you and I have been kind of geeking out about for a very long time. And then just, just spent 15 minutes on one of these streams last night, yesterday afternoon, watching this fight, Mavsari Vloyev goes out and answers all of the questions against Dan Ige in a performance that, let me be clear, Dan Ige reaffirms, continues to affirm that he is in that group, as we were just talking about with, with Volkov, of the guy that fights everybody, that gives everybody a hell of a fight, that is super talented, super skilled, and I don't care that he's now on a three-fight losing streak because look at who he's lost to. This dude is legit, shouts to Danny Gay. But this was a eye-opening, good lord is Mavsari Vloyev talented kind of performance. 
and I'm going to need to just clear out, just lay out, hit mute, and let you share your thoughts on this undefeated Russian prospect, now contender in the featherweight division. Damn straight. He was all right, wasn't he? He was all right. Um, the first... So I've watched the fight three times now, once live, twice, twice afterwards. The thing that I'm going to echo your statement about Dan Ige, when I was watching with yourself and Ian on, on the stream last night, I, I slipped into being a bit more of a fan, right? And I think that I overblowed a little the dominance of Evloev. Dan Ige was in that fight from minute naught to minute 15. He was in defensive cycles for a lot of it, but he was absolutely in that fight. I think what we saw from Mavsar Evloev was the coming out party, right? Dan Ige is your gateway to the upper echelon of the featherweight division. Obviously, heavyweight is a little bit more shallow than featherweight is, but him, Ige and Volkov play similar roles. If you go out, and you either stop Dan Ige or you look great against Dan Ige, you're destined for big things. And Evloev did just that. Round one was competitive for about two and a half minutes. And then Evloev lands the massive, gargantuan, huge flying knee. But Dan Ige decides he's going to be the crimson chin from Fairly Odd Parents and just eat it like lunch. Anyone else, anyone else, I think that either puts them away or they're rocked and stumbling across the cage from. And that's testament to Danny Ige's chin and his will to stay in there and keep fighting. You saw the same thing when Evloev eye-poked him, I think, in the second. It was a mistake, right? Evloev has a, has a, a sort of a notion of extending his lead hand out really, really far, basically as a jousting stick to... To, to, to gauge range and, and keep people away. This time he did it with his fingers outstretched and, and Dan, Dan, you know, ran into it. But immediately, as soon as the iPod went in, Ego was like, yeah, I'm grand. Let's carry on. Like pushing Keith Peterson out of the way. Like, let me fight. Let me fight. Same in the third with the low blow. Right. Doesn't give a fuck. Just wants to, just wants to fight. Yeah, we're good. Let's um, go. Absolutely. But what we saw from Evloev was a wave of momentum that built and built and built something that I thought about after the first round. And I asked of yourself and Ian was, is he going to be able to do this over five rounds? Well, the third was his most dominant round and he came away looking like he'd just started a brisk walk up a hill. There was a slight perspiration, but your man was fine. He wasn't even remotely blowing. He was in his element and it looked like, you know, when you've done a bit of rolling, right? And maybe you're five rounds deep and, and you're pretty sweaty, but you're all warm and, and everything's raring to go and you can really get into it then. It looks like he just warmed up truly and properly. The things that were impressive to me about Evloev were the reads that he was able to make. And generally fighters can make reads, but to then enact and change your game plan and change your style immediately based on those reads tells me that we are dealing with a, a gentleman that's very intelligent and very connected with both his body and his brain. The first read was he he actually made a mistake and Danny Ige started emulating that mistake. And that was 
throwing naked kicks, right? Naked low kicks, naked body kicks. In the first round, he throws, I think, one or two, and Danny Gay smashes him with right hands. And he's like, oh, okay, that's a bad idea. I'm going to stop doing that now. So he ends up going high or leading into them after punches or using them in the middle of his combos or just, you know, loosely throwing them out sort of flicky kicks that, you know, Dan's not going to bite on because he knows it's not real. But Dan Ige then starts throwing the same thing. And what does Movsar do? Smash him in the face as soon as he throws naked kicks. There was his ability to start slipping the jabs and the right hands of Dan Ige. Go back to round two. It's about 3.30 into round two. And he hits the cleanest duck under of a Dan Ige 1-2, you will see. He cracks Dan Ige on the way through, comes out the other side, turns around, and Ige forgets he's in a fight and you know doesn't really know where he is for a split second. And that's before we get to the grappling stuff, right? And, and we can sit and talk about the grappling stuff for another 45 minutes if you want. I'm going to be writing my uh, spotlight for Severian MMA, and it will probably be about 3,500 words just on the grappling and then maybe a small segment on the rest of it. But his grappling is fantastic right it's it's adhering to the fundamental principles that you would teach a day one white belt whatever of riding hips keeping your head above his head making sure that you're not concave or convex in the right moment the wrong moments keeping your hip height above the other person making sure that you're constantly in spatial awareness with your legs and your feet and that your knees are used as wedges and pins and you're you know you're using the right grips at the right times and you're addressing the the things that are the at the top of the hierarchical chain at the right times he's just he's just flawless with it you know there were moments that Danny Gay had double unders and he was in he was fine he was throwing ujimatas in he was using his weight he was using his base his ability to defensive wrestle to turn it into offensive wrestling was beautiful he's just he's everything you expect from a fighter from that region especially in the grappling aspect and he is looking more and more and more comfortable on the feet and you made this point during the live stream and I'll chuck it back to you for this point and you said the reason why he's able to dabble more in the striking and trust in his striking is the fact that he couldn't give a fuck who tries to grapple with him because he's got it. He's there. Yeah. One of the things, so, I mean, to that end, we saw it in the Hakeem Dawadu fight and we saw the opposite of it in, in the fights that were a little bit tougher for him, the Nick Lentz fight, the Mike Grundy fight, where both of those gentlemen are very good grapplers. Nick Lentz knows exactly what to do. Mike Grundy, Commonwealth medalist, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Very good overall grapplers. Nick Lentz does all the right things. We talked about it during that, that stream and otherwise, I think, on the preview show as well, right? Nick Lentz grabbing all of those guillotines isn't necessarily because Nick Lentz thinks, I'm going to finish this guillotine, so I'm going to just keep diving on them. It's, I'm going to make this dude have to think about this and have to defend this and respect this enough that he has to get the hell out of the way. And and that's all you need to do. He doesn't, Evloev doesn't have to worry about that against Dawadu. Didn't have to worry about it on Saturday against Danny Gay. And away we go. I think I'm, and, and various other people have been a little, we're a little reductive in doing the, ah, he's the new generation that has learned all of these things at once and 
and just kind of smashing it all together to talk about these, let's say, 22 through 28-year-olds now that have, in fact, learned everything and have a well-rounded skill set. And I think we get a little bit too quick to just throw the blanket on it and say, ah, they're good everywhere and not give them the full credit and the full marks that they deserve for the areas where they're truly outstanding. And I think Evloyev showed yesterday that that grappling is outstanding. It's not just he's very good everywhere. He is an outstanding grappler in a division where that can be and should probably end up being very, very important. But it also allows him to be not even risky, but just take some chances on the feet and take some opportunities to throw shots that he maybe wouldn't throw in other positions if he if his grappling isn't where it is. And that, to me, is what stood out the most from that fight on, on Saturday, outside of the fact that this undefeated 28-year-old is ready for a step up in another step up in competition. And we discussed it. And of course, it's, it's what everybody does after these fights and after these events is trying to figure out who it is. Now, in the cage, Evloev calls out Arnold Allen, called him Arnold Alien, called him a bullshit guy. You and I both like Arnie. We think he's not a bullshit guy. He's quite entertaining. Great fighter. And instantly we, we, myself, yourself, Ian O'Neill, all said, ah, don't really know if I like that fight. Don't want to see these two prospects fight each other. And of course, the majority of, of Twitter and the MMA community is like, no, you guys are idiots. That's the fight to make. So I put it to you, sir, after having not quite 24 hours to think about it. Everybody seems to want Mavsar Ivloyev versus Arnold Allen. Aside from Arnold Allen, who said we got to be fight, think we got to be fighting forward, shouldn't we? And and posted the the emojis of the Korean zombie. What's the right decision for this young man with a sixteen and zero record and seven consecutive wins in the UFC or six consecutive wins in the UFC? I mean, if I can be dream matchmaker, I, I still think the same as I said uh, last night. And the fight to make is Max Holloway. Now, that's not going to happen. Um, but if we look at the guys that are not matched, that are above him, you ha- basically have Giga Jakadze, Bryce Mitchell, and Sadiq Youssef. Now, the Sadiq Youssef and the Bryce Mitchell matchups are very interesting to me. The reason why they're very interesting to me is Sadiq Youssef can certainly grapple. And obviously, Bryce Mitchell can certainly grapple. I think both of those are fine fights because at the moment, there is a logjam of fights at featherweight. Everyone is sort of matched up with each other in the upper echelons of the division. I absolutely despise the Arnie fight. I think Arnold has undoubtedly earned his title shot. If not, he has earned a number one contenders fight. And I don't think Evloev, even on the stellar performance he put last night, is there. I would like to see him fight somebody that's of a higher caliber. I like the Sadiq Yusuf fight. I don't mind the Bryce Mitchell fight. Let's see that fight. And then let's have a look at who wins from 
Keita and Emmett. Let's see who wins out of Ortega and Yair. Let's see who wins out of Volkanovski and Holloway. And then let's make some decisions. I would have no problem with him fighting the winner of Yair and uh, Ortega. I don't know if that is. And Arnold Allen just get the winner of Holloway and uh, Volkanovski. Something that I spoke about last night, and I'll, I'll speak about the same with you. Shawnee made this this uh, this comparison on, I can't remember, it could have been this room. There's so many podcasts that I listen to, I can't tell you which one is which. But um, he was saying that so many of the the title fights in the last few years have been rematches, or there's been guys in the top three, and that top three hasn't changed in five years. And new blood needs to come through. And I think that if you put Evloev and Arnold Allen together right now, you're going to set one back a year, maybe two years, dependent on you know how the fight goes, injuries and building back up and the rest of the things. Why not have them compete in two years' time, potentially for a title? Then it gets real interesting, right? I don't know. But the fight for me, I'd like Bryce Mitchell and I wouldn't mind. I'd like Sadiq Yusuf as well. Either one of those fights is fine. So the podcast was the State of the Union that Sean and I recorded for Severe MMA um, probably 10 days ago now. Go check it out on the Patreon. Subscribe A ton to of good page. shit has come out of that. Actually. Sup- Listen, subscribe to the Patreon. It's um, I don't say it just because I turn up every once in a while. The stuff these guys are doing at Severe MMA is the absolute best in the goddamn business. From top to from top to bottom, from tips to tails, it is. They're just talking about things and thinking about things and presenting things and unpacking things in different ways. Go follow it. Occasionally, they let me say some things. I do agree with both you, with Sean, with that whole stream of of conversation. We need to get new blood in here. I will have a thing coming out in the next. It'll probably be two Mondays from now's podcast talking about the featherweight division and divisions in general needing to move forward from having the same people fight the same people. And I don't mean that they're always just rematches, but the same people in that upper echelon are always fighting the same people. And we need to move Arnold Allen into it. We need to move Mavsari Vloyev into it. We need Bryce Mitchell going forward because this is how divisions continue to, to grow and develop and evolve. And we get some of those fresh matchups that don't lead to yet another rematch and people going, ah, we've already seen this. I agree with you on the pairings. I don't want to see the Arnold Allen fight. I am a big proponent of move prospects forward in a parallel track until we get to a point where it is an absolute must. The one I always go back to as my example from this for this is Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos when they were both working their way forward in the heavyweight division. It became such a bigger fight when they finally met as undefeated fighters in the UFC for the heavyweight title because we had two or three years of knowing these are the guys that are going to get there and oh my god is it going to be fun now it lasted 64 seconds whole series was marred by injuries and delays and things like that but the build to that fight was gargantuan and everybody was interested and that's what we need to get back to doing in general it's what we need to do here i think arnold as you do is a step ahead of evloev at this point but Evloev's closing the gap, and Saturday showed that he is closing the gap, and he is very much somebody. He might actually be the best of this young group. He's just not quite there yet because it's been six fights and not nine, as Arnold has had. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't I don't know whether he is. I think Arnold is ahead in terms of in, in terms of the meritocracy right. because he's just done more in the UFC. Right. But whether he wins that fight or not, I don't know. I I mean my my initial thought and again it's recency bias. I just went and watched Evloev decimate Ige in the third round, right? The third round was fresh in my mind, and I'm like, ah, Jesus, this guy's all right, isn't he? And then he calls out Arnold, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I like that fight either. But, you know, I go and watch Arnold, go and watch Johnny back against Sadiq Yusuf, where he was like, yeah, that grappling's cool. Watch these left hands. <laughs> or go and absolutely pummel Dan Hooker into the abyss. You know, like, I'd have to go and think about that fight, but my initial fight, my initial fight thoughts are the grappling is the difference. Right. It's going to be interesting. We're going to have lots of conversations about these two gentlemen, this division, things of this nature going forward. And you and I will spend many, many hours both on this podcast and other conversations, having these discussions going forward. So we're going to pick up the pace a little bit here and kind of move through the rest of this card a little bit quicker. One, the next fight on the card, Lucas Almeida gets a victory over Michael Trezano, third round stoppage win. The one thing I want to discuss briefly with you here is the difference or maybe the distinction between, so this fight earned fight of the night. It earned rave reviews on Twitter as what a great fight. And you, me and Ian doing the stream that we were doing, just sitting here watching fights together, all kind of paused and said, was it a great fight or was it an entertaining fight? I lean towards entertaining. I also draw a distinction between entertaining and great. And to me, this was a entertaining fight between two guys that sort of for right now look like they top out in the middle of the pack in the featherweight division. There is absolutely nothing wrong with entertaining fights. I love entertaining fights, but this wasn't a great fight. I think it depends on how you, you know, you mentioned off air about, um, coming into semantic battles with people about submission names and whatever. And I think we're in another semantic battle here. Fair. Great fight to me is a mixture of high level skill and entertainment. We must not forget that we are in the entertainment business and, you know, we always arc back to Stefan Bonner and, uh, and, um, Forrest Griffin. Forrest Griffin, thank you. Jesus, I need more sleep. And, you know, if we look at that fight, that's one of the, the cornerstones of what we believe the UFC to be. It wasn't all that high level, lads, but it was definitely entertaining, right? Those lads went to absolute fucking war. Now, when we say fight of the night, and this is something I actually thought about for quite a while in bed last night after the fight, was... I need to be more open to how the public views fights and how I then view fights. To me, Trezano and Almeida was fun to watch, but it was fun to watch because you had two lads throwing big hooks with their chins in the air. Right. And it's fun because you get to see action. You get to see guys getting dropped and then recovering and whatever. But it's not smart fighting. It's not intelligent. It's not skillful fighting. The skillful fighting is Burns and Shimeyev round one, right? right? Which is skillful and action-packed, right? Right. 
uh, Usman versus Masvidal 2, skillful fighting and entertaining. Holloway, Ortega. Holloway, Yaya Rodriguez. Those are fights of the night in my book because right. they are both high level and entertaining. Now, don't get me wrong. As you've rightly said, we are, there is absolutely nothing wrong with purely entertaining fights. But we loop all the way back to what we're saying about UFC level, right? This, this is exactly the same conversation. This is an amalgamation of the same point. We must recalibrate what we determine to be the UFC level. And I'm talking about me specifically and obviously yourself. Is that the fight of the nights are going to be handed out to fighters that, let's be honest, are deserving of the money. But also, the skill levels are not the same that which we are used to. So, fight of the night is more garnered towards entertainment, pure entertainment, right. than it is skill plus entertainment. And I will be the first to acknowledge, as I often do in my writing, that I am both often an outlier and kind of a snob about these. Like I'm kind of dickish about these things. I, I, yeah, have a different standard than some people. Doesn't, there's no, I'm right. You're right. You're wrong. I'm wrong. Whatever. I'll just acknowledge that my interpretation of that fight is it's entertaining. I personally wouldn't call it a great fight, but that's because my definition is different. And as you said, I myself even need to redefine things and, at least remember and make sure I'm clear of the fact that my definition is probably different than other people's. And that's perfectly acceptable. It doesn't have to be one way or the other. It can be all of these things. The rest of the main card, we'll dive through it here. Three finishes, all in the first round. Karine Silva gets a Darce choke on Pollyanna Botelio, which I will let you talk about momentarily. Ode Osborne, Finishes Zarukadashev with a beautiful right hand to the chin that kind of fit what we talked about on the preview show of Adashev being a little bit slow for this division and Ode Osborne being a bad matchup in that regard. And the main card kicked off with Alonzo Menafield out athleting and mashing Askar Mosharov, whose record just like one, he's not used to people fighting back, two, he took about seven losses this week, if you understand and, and paid attention to the way his record went from like 25 and six to now standing at 19 and 12. But I know the one of those that stood out the most for you, as I said, was the Karine Silva finish. I have to acknowledge that, that I didn't know that this was something she had. I didn't necessarily think this was something she had because I didn't think she looked that great on the contender series but a really great finish over Pollyanna Botelio. Absolutely. Um, it was just really smart grappling. Really, really smart grappling. We talked about Evloev and his ability to deal with the, the most prominent danger in the hierarchy of dangers, right? And and Silva did that really, really well. So after she dropped Botelio, Botelio grabbed what's called a head pinch, which is essentially where you have one arm, bicep deep around your opponent's head and you're sandwiching their arm inside that grip, right? So you've got your head, their arm, their head, your arm, you're making grips. This is a head pinch, right? What does it do? It restricts movement in whichever arm you're head pinching and also means that it's hard for your opponent's head to move. Generally from here, you have back takes and you have sweeps and you have all sorts of things. Batelio had a far side butterfly hook, so she was threatening to sweep 
uh, Silver to Patelio's right-hand side. Silver did a great job of addressing the butterfly hook immediately. A butterfly hook is most effective if it's at the knee line because that's one of the lighter points of the lever. You can't go all the way at the feet because you don't have the leverage, but the knee is, is a really good spot for you to go at. And Batelio was looking for that, that knee lever. Silver really, really nicely grabbed an overhook on the leg, drawing it up her leg, aka destroying much of the leverage, then pummeled out, ended up in side control. And from here, everything got a bit magical. So generally when you're in side control, you have to dominate hip lines and you have to dominate shoulder lines. That's why it's an effective pin, right? Because you have you have things pinning both of those elements. She took her right-hand side and went to a near hip. What that stops you from doing is that stops Batelio from creating an angle to her left and bringing her right knee inside. It's called a shrimp and then a regard, right? You'll see it all the time in the UFC. You'll see it in any jiu-jitsu class you go to. It's a 101 side control regard. If you place that hand on the floor, you have an arm blocking you, right? So that, that, that regard becomes ineffective. But what she was actually doing was creating a dilemma for Batelio. You can't regard that way. So the only way that you can go is to let go of the head pinch and begin to turtle. The moment that she turtled, this is where the dust started. So Silver started to lock up what I call a, a, a scissor on, on her head, which is essentially one forearm over the back of her neck and one forearm underneath an arm and, and, and clasping in a gable grip. What this is useful for is returning people's shoulders to the mat so you can create a really, really tight bend on the head. And it's very, very difficult for you to base away from that. And you can drive a person to the mat. Fine. It's also a DAS setup. And that's what we saw, right? But the real magic is as the DAS was sinking in, Batelio had done the right defensive movement, which is to open her arm and try and grab a hip grip. That widens the shoulder and takes some of the pressure off the choke. Silver took a big step over after scooting her hips in with her own right leg and collected both the leg and the arm of Batelio. That means that her means of opening up the shoulder has now been diminished because uh, Silver's thigh is pressing down on the tricep of Batelio, but also she's collected her leg, which means Batelio isn't able to circle out of the choke. Um, and then, you know, you squeeze and it's done. And it was beautiful. Really, really lovely stuff from Silver. Folks, this is why I start this podcast when Harry's here, telling you to go follow him, singing his praises that make him very uncomfortable. Because that is, that's stuff I can't do. That's stuff you're not getting on a Sunday morning podcast looking at the fourth fight on the main card of, of this event. And it's why Harry will be a regular feature on this podcast. I I have no notes. I have no nothing to add. I'm looking forward now to seeing where Karina Silva goes forward. I said during the week that this felt like a, let's put her in a position to maybe be a star and maybe have a performance that we can build off of. She absolutely delivered that. She is in the right division in terms of getting more opportunities and there being a chance to build in a slow progression through sort of a collection of athletes that are there at different levels. And we'll get to somebody who has done that thus far shortly. This was, this, this opened my eyes to Karina Silva being better than I thought she was. And those are the kind of things I look for from performances like this, on cards like this, from fighters like this. This is why I care about every fight, folks. Learn something regardless of who they are. So we get now to some of these preliminary card fights. You and I both had a little conversation yesterday 
offline about Karolina Kovalkiewicz, who goes out and gets a submission win over Felice Herrig, who then retires, shouts to Felice, always a wonderful person to enjoy watching, a wonderful person to talk to, just an absolute great human being. All the best going forward. She's had success in endeavors outside of the sport already. She will continue to do that. Shouts to the little bulldog. Congratulations on a wonderful career. You mentioned something yesterday about the Karolina Kovalkiewicz performance that I have noted down here. And it, it's that she seemed more committed to the fight than she had in previous times. And I wondered if you could just kind of expand on what you mean from that. Because I think it is absolutely the correct assessment, but something that people don't necessarily think of or maybe understand. So the floor is yours again, sir. So the thing that... so. <sighs> The Achilles heel of Karolina Kovalkiewicz was her mindset, I think. And she's talked about this openly, so I feel comfortable to, to sort of uh, delve into it also. She struggled to be present in fights. She struggled to want to be in fights. I think something that's a real intangible skill that's very difficult to coach, I think it's probably about as impossible as anything it is to coach, is somebody's willingness to fight. When things get gritty and you're dragged to the trenches and it's a bit of a war and there's attrition involved and there's guts and there's blood and you're tired and there are some fighters that revel in that situation and there are some fighters that absolutely do not want to be there. A fighter that... The, the fight that really made me realize this, and this is really going to sound strange, is it, it was semi-recent, was John Jones Gustafson, right? We'd never really seen John Jones pushed in any way, shape, or form. But going into those fourth and fifth rounds, you saw John Jones like, oh, no, I'm going to fucking destroy this guy from four and fifth. And it didn't go like that, right? It was still a very close fight in all of those rounds. But you see laid bare in front of you the fiber of somebody's soul. Another one is Israel Adesanya, Kelvin Gastelum, right? I'm ready to, to I'm ready to die for this, is what he mouthed to him, right? Karolina Kovalkiewicz, in some of her matchups, did not have that, or at least did not allow herself to display that. In this matchup, I felt that um, Felice came out and started pretty well. She looked confident. She was letting her hands go. She has a fantastic kicking game and used that to great to, to, to great advantage in, in the, the opening stanzas of this fight. And then there was a moment. And there was a moment where Carolina got hit a couple of times and my brain said, she's making a decision here. You can see she's making a decision. And then she put left foot in front of right foot and was like, oh, now nah, I'm going to win this fight. And I was like, okay, this is cool. We've now got Karolina Kovalkiewicz back, at least for this fight. And that was something that was wildly impressive. Something that you don't get to see often is a fighter coming back from some hellacious knockouts, some bad beatings, and making a conscious decision that, no, no, I want to be here. I thought that was very, very impressive. Yeah, it's one of those things that I don't want to myself overreact to this performance in terms of saying Carolina Kovalkiewicz is all the way back because a single win doesn't necessarily dictate that just as a single loss doesn't mean you're out of the mix. It had been, as you said, some hellacious losses in there, some bad knockouts, some just utterly, utterly poor performances where if she had said, that's it, I'm done. We absolutely go forward and, 
and she's just done and she doesn't come back. But this was kind of the performance that, that you needed to see from this fight for both of them, really. You saw the best Feliz had to offer. She came out and did what she could do, got to the end of it, lost and said, yep, I need to close the door on this chapter because I, I can't quite put myself through this anymore. I don't quite have the ability to continue doing this. So I'm going to walk away. And Kovalkiewicz, as you said, did the exact opposite thing and said, nope, I'm going to keep putting myself, at least for this fight, through this. I'm going to keep chasing this. I'm very interested to see what's next because obviously we know the level of Karolina Kovalkiewicz in the past, previously, may not be there anymore. It may not be at that point. But I'm very interested to see what she has next. You're giving me the, I have a thing to say. I do have a thing to say. And that's the one thing, and I won't spend too long on this because otherwise I'll be gone for 25 minutes ranting about it. Karolina Kovalkiewicz did something to get that finish that was wildly impressive also. Something that I've discussed previously and, and you and I uh, discussed last night was when fighters are looking to finish from the back, I don't think it's enough anymore to just look for chokes. To hand fight and chokes in MMA gloves is very difficult. There's a far more, there's far more surface area for you to grab for fighters to defend when they're looking at underhooking arms and whatever. It's far easier to protect your neck because there's so much fabric to get underneath the chin. It's tough to finish people in MMA with chokes. The way that you look to do that, and we'll maybe we'll talk about this in the in the Damon Jackson performance, but when you're solely looking for finishing uh from the back with chokes and hand fighting you have the opportunity to get hit they may not be drastically damaging shots but you have the opportunity to take shots and damon jackson took some pretty bad shots to the eye and was pretty marked up and his eye swelled up from getting hit whilst he had somebody's back my argument is we should be looking to flatten out fighters when we have their back and Karolina Kovalkiewicz absolutely looked for this dilemma against Felice Herrig she looked to flatten her out she looked to get hooks and what I mean by flattened out is you have your hooks you push your hips into your partner's lower back and essentially they must buckle under the pressure um, if you drive enough they must buckle otherwise they'll injure themselves quite significantly so you you press their belly to the mat and you can then have you you then have full control you can land as uh, as drastic dra ground and pound as you want or you can look for chokes if the, if that's what's offered um carolina did that and that was brilliant we'll so on. let's just fold damon jackson into this because he goes out he gets another victory against dan argueta who is traditionally a bantamweight who had a good accounting of himself in this fight. I think he is somebody, as I said, going into it yesterday as he kind of made the walk, looked like somebody that just needs more experience when he was on the Ultimate Fighter Season 29, lost in the opening round to eventual eventual winner Ricky Tercios. He's just a guy that has, this was his ninth fight. He just needs more time. Just a guy, and, and looked good against a very talented, very experienced Sean Sheehan's favorite fighter, Damon Jackson. But that was a fight where, you and I were having the conversation offline of he needs to do more here rather than just hold on to that body triangle and constantly be fishing and adjusting hands and throwing the odd shot to try to get in. You mentioned the point about belly down. I also think it's where I have come to greatly appreciate transition grappling and transition attacks more so because when you get to that point that Damon Jackson was at yesterday in the sec first and second round, where he's locked on 
Dan Argetta's back. He is the human Jansport. Shout out to Aljo. Dan Argetta knows what to do. He has all the right counters to all of those attacks. And it kind of doesn't feel like wasted positioning or wasted time, but you saw Safe Saud in each of those rounds in between rounds kind of lay into Damon Jackson and be like, look, man, we need to fucking do more because, yep, great, you're here. Get something out of this. Don't just spend five minutes here. And I think that's where what you speak of, of, of flattening people out and opening up more opportunities for attack or just in those transition moments where you're starting to get there and they're going to be defending something else, that's where we're seeing some athletes have a lot of success attacking the neck early before hooks are in, before the body triangle's on, because we're not at that point of the almost formulaic pattern of this dance of, okay, now they're going to do this, and now I have to start defending my neck. Everything is about dilemmas. In MMA and in straight grappling, everything is about dilemmas. In straight grappling, if you want to attack somebody's leg, you attack their arms. They pull their arms out, they give their legs up, and vice versa. When you're in a position, and, and there's a judging element to this as well, right? If you've taken somebody's back, that's great. If you're not attempting to submit them, or if you're not a landing effective damage, the position means nothing. So Damon Jackson having Argueta's back and doing nothing with it, I mean, it's not a neutral position by any stretch of the imagination. He's done great work to get there and to solidify the position. But if you're in such an advantageous position, you need to do more right? To your point, you have to do more and you're in such a good position to do more. It makes no sense for you to not. Now, the only uh, thing, uh, sympathy I will give Damon Jackson is most of the times that he managed to get to Argueta's back, he was crunched up against the cage himself. That's a difficult spot, right? You do want to have some mobility. You do want to be able to maybe roll him to the other side. Maybe you want to move him around, whatever. And Damon Jackson feeling the athleticism, you know, sat in his lap essentially maybe he just wanted to hold on to that and look for chokes and do whatever fine but you know i think the more the mma goes the more you're going to see transitionary submissions and transitionary knockouts come out because in transition that's generally where dilemmas are occurring the spots that people aren't used to things are becoming the very very central and important differentiator in in terms of winning and losing and in terms of where the really where the really great athletes are separating themselves from the very good it's something and i'm just going to tease it i talked with a couple of coaches for these fights coming up next week at ufc 275 and it's something that eric nixick and i talked about with yuri prohashka in particular in his fight with glover Teixeira, of being one of the things that makes yuri very dangerous is in those spots where most people are used to resting where most people are used to, okay, we separate here and we get a reset. He bashes you with an elbow or he bashes you with a right hand or a kick or whatever it is. And we're seeing that in grappling as well. And it is a thing, folks. Continue to pay attention to it. Because as soon as you see it the first couple times and go, oh, that was different. And look at how effective it is. You won't look at things the same way going forward. A couple more quick points on the prelims. The Joe Selecki alex De Silva fight. Look, take the goddamn point early, right away. We had a couple of these during, we had it in the Renat Fakradinov fight. Just take points. John Anik mentioned it in that first fight. We saw it throughout the fight with Selecki and De Silva. Your first warning's in the back. 
you know the rules. You're told in the back, hey, this is what we're going to do. I don't need six, seven warnings anymore. Also, Alex De Silva, I don't know what you were raising your hands about. You were happy that you maybe had a chance to get a draw, and then you didn't even get a draw. So put your hands down. Just go on. Tony Gravely gets a beautiful knockout on Johnny Munoz. Um, I had said going in, like, I think this all comes down to Gravely's wrestling and, and whether the conditioning or the cardio holds up, whether the gas tank is there, if he can wrestle for 15 minutes and, and deal with Johnny Munoz constantly looking to scramble. And instead, he just threw a perfectly timed right hand that serves as a reminder that he is very good, serves as a reminder that Nate Manis is even better because beat Tony Gravely pretty handily and has a great fight coming up with Umar Namagomedov very shortly. And the bantamweight is just the best division on the planet right now because these guys that are really great, like Tony Gravely, who's won four of his last five, is nowhere near the rankings and nowhere near sniffing even a, you know, particularly big established name that you care about. I'm going to let you talk a little bit about Jeff Molina and his fight with Jalgas Zhumagulov, who I know you're very high on and you talked about glowingly on the preview show. It was a... Look, the 30-27 Jeff Molina, we can debate. We can get into another judging discussion, but we've done that. Sean's done that. We can do it another time. Everybody, I think you need to watch it with no second screens, with the sound off, or as Scott Fontana suggested on this show, with the Spanish broadcast on, so you understand the moment, but you don't understand the actual call. But A, to me, it was a good learning experience for Jeff Molina and a good building block fight for Jeff Molina, even if it wasn't the breakthrough effort that maybe I or others were hoping for. Yeah. Zalgas is a tough matchup. He's a tough matchup. And in this, I thought he made good adjustments. He didn't come out like he was a matador trying to tame a bull, right? Like he came out and he was a little bit more patient. And I think he understood if he just ran at Molina, it was going to be a really long night. I think we also saw from Molina some of the deficiencies in his game that he just doesn't have quite the sticking power that you're going to need to, to excel in his sort of style of fighting, right? He He's happy to fight on the front foot, but he's best when he's slipping and countering and using the footwork that he has. And what he didn't do or doesn't have yet, and you know maybe he can add this, he doesn't have the ability to stop somebody in their tracks with one shot and really make them think about bulldozing into things. And one thing that is going to be a problem is guys will just walk in and throw more than he's willing to throw. If you're going to throw a three-shot a three combo, I'm going to throw five. If you're going to throw four, I'm going to throw seven because I know that one of those shots is likely not to put me away, but one of mine might. And I thought that in this fight, that was the overarching nature. If he's able to pick apart a fighter and move on the back foot and cut his angles and do all these sorts of things, he looks great. I thought actually his grappling defensive mechanics were far, far, far better than in his last outing. I'm really bad with names. I've forgotten who it is, but it was a Daniel good grappler. De Silva. De Silva. Yeah, that's it. Um, he was in 
some interesting spots, some good spots that you'd expect Zalgas to either return him to the map from or to, to, to move on from. And he was addressing hands really well. He was looking for inside space really well. He was keeping his feet at the right cadence apart so that he wasn't immediately tripped or taken down or, or picked up and robbed. Like he, he performed much better in the defensive grappling aspect. Um, 30 27 is probably a bit of a crazy card for me, for Molina. Um, I think the second round was very close, if I remember rightly. Um, but I think you're right that what we'll see from Molina now, what we may see from Molina is what lessons he takes from this outing and how he brings that into his next. Because what he does to bridge the gap of the lack of power is going to be very interesting for me. Yeah, I think the note you made about the improvements in his grappling there and, and the the clear improvements because it was in that first round against Daniel Lacerda, who I believe is also like a Daniel Lacerda de Silva. So names are the same, um, was that he was controlled and he did, I think he was on his back. He was defending chokes and it, it too, looked like he was making kind of the wrong choices at some points or just yes. hanging out too long in some tricky spots where otherwise you should just be trying to get the hell out. That's the stuff that I, more than anything, more than getting worried about the, you know, judges scorecards and things like that. Those are the things I'm looking for, especially out of a 24 year old fighter in his third UFC appearance. Like that's what I want to see is that in the six months since that fight or seven months since that fight, he's addressed those issues and he's clearly worked on them and clearly gotten better because that gives me hope. And that gives me thought that it can continue to improve to where the positives we saw in the clinch was Zhalgaz Zumagulov when he's around his waist and he's fighting the hands and he's making the right decisions of getting his shoulders back on the cage and all the things following all the instruction properly can continue to develop and improve to where when he gets into some of these bigger fights with these bigger names and better grapplers even than, than Zumagulov, he's got those things. I agree with you completely on the power side of things. He is more of a use your momentum and your mistakes combined with my precision to put you down than a I'm going to bash you with this right hand that you've never felt before. But I do still think that he is a guy that has upside in this division, but also fits that we need to bring him along slowly. We need to just give him four or five, and like as much as I don't want to necessarily see athletes have to win seven, eight, nine, 12 fights in a row before they're in contention, I think we can't make blanket statements. I think we have to take it on a case-by-case basis. And for a guy like Molina, who, yes, has now won three in a row, look at where they've been, look at how they've been, and progress him accordingly. So this is a good step out of that upper lower class kind of fight in this division, that lower third of the the collection of fighters in the flyweight division and move them into that middle third and have him be there for three, four, five fights, depending on results. If he moves forward by leaps and bounds against one of these guys or two of these guys, then sure we can accelerate that process. But right now there have been no signs that we need to step on the gas pedal and get him in there with a top 15 fighter. But I do still believe over the course of, say, three years, like when he turns 27, this is a guy that might, 
development being what it is, still be capable of, of reaching that top 15, if not a little bit further. I agree. I agree. I think it's inter- it's going to be interesting. Yeah. I mean, you've hit all the nails on the head, to be honest. It's going to be interesting to see where he goes and what he does. Um, personally, I can't see him climbing to the very, very higher echelons of the division. I just think that there's a ceiling to his game. And unless we see uh, a different style come out of him, then it's going to be tough. Like to me, Jeff Molina should be looking to be Max Holloway. That sort of attrition-based, accumulation-based fighter. He has a good base of footwork. He has very quick hands. Uh, I'd be looking to be a mini Max Holloway if I could, if I'm Molina. Volume, volume, pace, pace, pace. Not going to get you out of there with one shot, but I can I can get you with death by a thousand cuts. Absolutely. The points about acceleration, the points about developmental curves all apply to Aaron Blanchfield as well, who goes out in the first fight of the night, is getting picked apart on the peak by J.J. Aldrich, and then shows the opportunistic side of her game and the class of her grappling abilities or her submission game, I should say, because wasn't really much grappling. It was just, here's your neck. I'm going to grab your neck and you're not getting out of this with a lovely high elbow guillotine. She is somebody that I am absolutely high on. I believe she could, she might very well be the best prospect in the UFC given age and experience and where she may progress to. As you rightfully pointed out during that fight, there's tons of stuff she still needs to work on, primarily on the feet. But overall, what would you say of this performance from Aaron Blanchfield? A good developmental performance. Um, Clearly the grappling and the submission grappling, submission-orientated grappling is where her strengths are. And we saw that. She had one opportunity to find the neck and she found it. On the feet, she was getting pieced up, but it wasn't as though she didn't look like she knew what she was doing. I just think... She knew what she was doing. She just didn't have the skills to match JJ Aldrich, who has really good footwork, a really good jab, and a pretty solid right hand as well. Um, and I like JJ Aldrich. I think this was a great matchup for Blanchfield to go away and understand that in the one and a half rounds that she had in this fight, there are lots and lots of things to work on. We saw some good stuff from her on the feet. We saw some slips. We saw some counters. We saw some some body attacks. We saw some nice stuff. We also saw some, some not-so-good stuff that she will need to close the holes very quickly if we are expecting her to be launched into the stratosphere as the UFC is going to do. But when you have a killer instinct and a positional awareness as Blanchfield had in that front headlock. Again, dilemmas. The front headlock is, do I snap you down? Do I look to try and run to your back? Do I move into uh, single legs or or fireman carries or whatever we're looking at? Or do I just try and snatch your neck? Those are the things that Aldrich had to to think about. And I think uh, Blanchfield summed it up really well in a post-fight interview, actually. She just said, I didn't feel like she was protecting her neck at all. So I just snatched it. Fine. I'm here for it, you know? Now, I don't think you're going to find many women that are in the top five that if you find in the same position are going to just leave their neck open. I think that would be uh, a little bit foolish of them. 
But Blanchfield is certainly a prospect, a big prospect. And I would like to see her have another fight in six to seven months. Let's go away, really study the tape, really look at the holes, maybe go and get some outside looks, really focus on those hands, really focus on the foot, really focus on the head movement. And then let's see another test like Georgie Aldridge. Yeah, she said after the fight that she would like to fight the winner of of Jessica I and Macy Barber, which is coming up here soon. You and I immediately, in the middle of a conversation, said, oh my God, no. And pulled up Zane Simon's list on bloody elbow of, of everybody in the division and tried to map out what we thought was the best course for her. I'm in full agreement. I don't think there's any need. I think we actually saw with Macy Barber the challenges of this, the 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 poor decision of this to rush somebody up. And now everybody will probably shout, yeah, but what about Casey O'Neill? Well, Casey O'Neill might be a different case. Casey O'Neill might be that person that is well-rounded enough already and competent enough, skilled enough in every facet of the game that at 24 and very early in her career, she can make a run like this where she's having the finishes she had before the win over Roxanne Modafari. The other thing I will say, and this, look, Casey's out right now. She's dealing with recovering from an ACL surgery. So get well soon, King Casey. But I would argue that where Casey O'Neill is at right now is where she needs to stay for another fight or two. Because everything forward from where she is is a whole lot more dangerous. It's a whole lot more challenging. And we saw that with Macy Barber, right? She ran through a couple of people, had some very good performances, including beating JJ Aldrich, and then ran into Roxanne Modafari, where look, Yes, knee injury, whole nine yards. She was getting pieced up by Roxanne Modafari. And I'm pausing here because I think anybody that has watched the sport and appreciates the sport and understands the sport knows what that means, that you're getting outstruck by Roxanne Modafari. It's not that I think Aaron Blanchfield is going to suffer the same fate necessarily against a similar caliber of opponent if she faces whoever the new Roxanne Modafari is and shouts to Roxy for her retirement. But I, with you, want to see her take, as we said with Molina, that slower approach where there are enough women in this division of the J.J. Aldrich class, of the J.J. Aldrich type, that she can fight them and continue to make these improvements and make these adjustments so that, as Shawnee always talks about, we get the best fighting the best when they are the best. Not too early. Not where we're damaging these prospects kind of mental side of things and and you know belief in themselves because we're rushing them in too soon i agree i do agree and i think we're in a similar situation of that of heavyweight uh, heavyweight well a little bit of heavyweight but also featherweight right we're talking push and i i agree with you wholeheartedly that you push prospects up in parallel lines and you match them with the people that are edging out of the ranks at the right times, right? There will be the time for Casey O'Neill to fight Macy Barber, to fight Miranda Maverick, to fight Erin um, Blanchfield, to fight all of the all of these ladies will and eventually fight each other. But let's do it when they're at the height of their powers, right? Let's do it either for titles or for number one contenderships. Let's really see these ladies progress, bring the division on and then have them match. Because I think there's a larger point here about prospects fighting people at the right time. 
something that is very difficult that you touched on at the very start of this podcast is Volkov being an upper echelon middle of the pack guy and managing to stay there. The reason why that's hard is because you have to do the same amount of work as everyone else. Maybe slightly less than champions because, you know, whatever. But you have to do a similar amount of work, a similar amount of arduous, difficult, testing, destructive on your body work to never make it. You have to be okay with that. You have to reconcile with that. You have to get up every day when your body is battered, your mind is tired, and you have to take yourself to the gym knowing that you are very likely never going to have that gold wrapped around your waist. You're going to have to know that the fight that you're probably getting next will be the guy that they think is going to have gold wrapped around your waist. And you have to reconcile that and manage to still put the same work in to solidify your spot as the best underachiever. It's your, you can see the tip of the mountain, but you can't touch it. And for that, what you don't want to do is push prospects so quickly that you create people like that too soon. You don't want to force a fighter like a Casey O'Neill or an Aaron Blanchfield to take so many losses early because you've pushed them so hard that the love for the sport, the love for the skill acquisition, and the love for that, that raw bastard energy to try and get to the top is diminished. Why? Because think about that in 15 years. If Aaron Blanchfield goes in and wins the title one day, how many women is that going to inspire? How many next generation fighters is that going to inspire to see four ladies, Acacia O'Neill and Miranda Maverica, Macy Barber and Aaron Blanchfield, smashing it at the height of their powers, taking that division grades further? This is something I think that is missing from the UFC matchmaking right now. That feels very much both like a terrific point to end this conversation, but also a future edition episode of Speaker's Corner on the Severe MMA Patreon feed, which you shall all be subscribing to. As Shawnee likes to say, it's the price of a pint. It's still early in the month. This is the point where, where that contribution is most valuable. It's valuable all the time, as I said earlier. Go and do it. Go and follow Harry at BJJ underscore Harry Powell. He's shown to you over these last 90 minutes why he gets all of the platitudes that I throw his way and all of the plaudits that I throw his way. He is he is amazing. It's terrific. Thank you, kind sir, for taking time out of your day to jump on this podcast. I will give you the the floor to plug yourself even more and the things coming up or, or the boys and, and severe. But thank you for doing this. I appreciate this. I hope that we can make this a weekly thing. I um, something I oh, enjoy. Oh, it's going to be a weekly thing. Grant, the thing that I enjoy more than watching fights necessarily, and you know, is 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 breaking down fights and then discussing them with people that um, have a similar interest and a similar passion to me. So, I understand that these are usually like forty-five minutes long, and I've doubled this, and that's generally the, the you know how these things tend to go. You know, when I do speaking corners, MMA. They do. Sean says to me, ah, oh, look, I've got 30 minutes and then we're an hour and 40 deep. And he's like, I really need to go. Um, but look, go and listen to the roundup that's free on the Severe MMA uh, podcast feed. And you can you can get a glimpse of what's available from Severe MMA. The guys in the team put in a crazy amount of work. And you must remember that, that they're not, this isn't their primary income stream other than Sean. And he's worked 14 years to get there. 
these are guys that are doing it purely for the passion of the sport. And I can't really sell it to you any more than that. There are guys that are putting in incredible amounts of hours for a secondary side hustle or at some point for some of them, just a passion project. These are guys that think about the sport properly, cover the sport properly, and they work for somebody like Sean Sheehan and like Graham McDonald. And it's a great team. They put out great content. And that subscription to their Patreon would really, really help the guys. So please go and do that. Thanks very much. Shouts to all of those boys. Shouts to all of you for listening. Thank you very much for spending these 90 minutes with us. We will do this every Sunday going forward. And I know Harry just said, ah, these are usually 45 minutes. It's usually 45 minutes because that's as long as I think you want to hear me natter on by myself. But when I'm bringing in intelligent people like him, and we can have these discussions that I think are important. That if you follow this feed, if you follow my work, you know I think these conversations are important. And this isn't just us two idiots wanting to get up here and sound important. I think these discussions and the details that we get into are things that I want more people to get into and think about. And so I'm going to use this platform to spotlight and showcase brilliant minds like Harry, mediocre minds like myself, and provide you guys with as much entertainment as we can. Have a great week. We will, I will be back tomorrow with the Monday pod. Not quite sure what I'm going to talk about yet, but I'm sure it'll be 30 to 45 minutes of me just climbing on a soapbox and having something to say. Until then, be good to one another. Take care of yourselves. Know that you're loved. We'll see you next Sunday. <laughs>